What is Demystifying Research? Hosted by me, Kelly Harris. And me, Catherine Hoyt. Demystifying Research is a space where we dialogue on training, careers, and all things research. Everything from is research right for me to thinking about applications, mentorship, which research degree is right for me, handling failure and rejection, CVs versus resumes, and funding. This is a space where we engage in discussions around the questions we all have or have had when considering a career in research and science. As clinician scientists, we seek to answer questions and address issues that aren't clearly addressed in more formal spaces, things that weren't addressed in our clinical training, questions that we may not know how or where to begin to seek answers. This is not a space only for scientists and researchers, but for anyone who may be interested in science and research. We're so glad you've joined us. Let's dive in. And we're excited today to welcome Dr. Nardos to talk about his experiences with how he came to research and what that path looked like and um, why research might be a career for you or maybe why not. We know that those decisions uh, can come at different stages in life. And even once you pursue a research degree, you might even make a make different decisions after that as well. So I, I have... I have just accepted a new position, but it hasn't been officially announced yet, so I can't speak on it. So right now, officially, I am a postdoctoral scientist uh, that, that works at Oregon Health and Sciences University. And I work in a lab that's interested in understanding um, what goes on in the brains of people that have chronic pain. You know, all these like weird chronic pains that you hear about, fibromyalgia, all other kind of body aches and pains that that are not easily explainable, like other kinds of pain. Like if I burn your hands, I know what happens. So the chronic pain, we just don't. And we're trying to understand that um, using functional neuroimaging. So we bring you in, we scan your brain while we expose you to... Uh, stimuli that may be painful to you um, and I can in the interest of time I won't go too much into this but uh, that's, that's so we're trying to understand the basis of chronic pain in the brain uh, my previous background when I was here at Washington University which is where I got my PhD in neuroscience I was interested in understanding how the young adult brain you know, the brains of people like you and I hears a new word let's say in a new language maybe and make sense of it how do we learn new words you know you might think that most of new work learning happens in childhood which is true when you learn your first language but i was interested in, in understanding how how that happens in a young adult brain and i also did some experiments to try to teach people some new words and i, I scanned their brains before and after they learned stuff to try to see what happened in their brain uh, that's and that's my background, and I will let you guys ask questions. So yeah. the first question, um, yeah. thank you for sharing that little you know, intro about kind of what you're doing now. But I, we're interested in just hearing a little bit about your story, you know, what brought you to research. So can you tell us just a little bit about your story of how you, how yeah. you got to that point? I think my interest in research started probably when I started speaking. When I was a kid, you know, so I come from a family of teachers. My dad is a professor and he, he taught educators. He taught teachers how to teach. And my mom was a teacher and that's actually how they met <laughs> at the job, you know. And, you know, I was, I was their son and 
from since I was five. I, I just had a very inquisitive mind. I, I wanted to know how things worked, and I had just a million questions. You know, uh, what's that thing hanging in the you know the sun? How does it work? Why does it keep rotating? You know, just questions. And that's what research is: is you trying to make sense of some question that you have. Um, and how do you answer that question? How do you go about? Where do you start? You know, so if you're interested in something in occupational therapy and understanding why or how a person can get to you know, some sort of rehabilitated state, uh, you form some question. Okay, if I do this, if I do that, and then how do you form the ideas that are good research ideas and bad research ideas? What have other people done before? You're clearly not the first person to have thought about this. Uh, and how do you make sense of it? And then arrive at some some way of understanding what it is that you think you care about. And we do this all the time, I think, in life. And I was lucky enough to get into a program, a neuroscience graduate program, that paid me to, to think like this, to, to ask these sorts of research questions. And my question at the time was, how do we understand how the brain makes sense of word meanings? But you know, my background is I came from Ethiopia. That's where I was born. Um, I came to this country in 2000, uh, and I went a whole bunch of different ways. I Neuroscience came much later for me. I went to a school called Franklin and Marshall College in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. You ever heard of Amish people? That's, I got to meet some Amish people there. Uh, I studied computer science and economics when I was there. And my computer science background is what led to me getting a research technician job here at WashU in a lab that at the time was interested in understanding recovery from stroke. And they hired me as a tech and I you know, did the computer stuff, but I also got interested in the brain and how it all works. And I became the person that you know helped design some of the experiments to, in this case, I uh, was after stroke, some of the subjects that we had were uh, they had aphasias, different types of aphasias. And we were trying to understand how, uh, at the time, I was working for Dr. Connor. She had this idea called constraint-induced uh, therapy. You guys may have heard of it in, in OT. Um, and the idea is to, you know, whatever aspect of language is impaired in these people, let's try to see if we can you know, constrain other parts of their mind so that they can focus on this impaired kind of state, see if we have them in that way. And this came from motor therapy. Like if I hurt my arm, I choose not to use it usually because it's weaker, but if I constrain my other arm and force me to use it, I might maybe recover quicker. You know, it's, it's kind of the idea that I posted. So, that, so that's what led to who I am now. You know, I, I then I, I started taking classes, neuroscience, and biology classes, like I said, you know, my background was economics and computer science. So I had to take a bunch of the, the science stuff on the side while I was working. And uh, I did that. A few years later, I got into grad school, finished grad school. It took me a while, it took me six and a half years to get through it. It varies, you know, some people finish in four. I was like, what am I still doing here? So we finished, you know, we're here now and, and, uh, yeah, so that's that's why I am. Excellent, thank you. I was muted. I was just gonna say, I know Dr. Harris, you had a little bit of an interesting path to, to research and I saw one of the questions here in the chat 
what motivated, I think you might be good to answer this, what motivated you to pursue a PhD and come back from a clinical world to, to getting that degree? Yeah, um, I can answer that really quickly um, and you can jump back in. I, so I'm a clinical speech pathologist and I um, worked with both adults and then children um, for, for several years. And I, I knew like when I was getting my master's that I want to do something else. I'm just not sure where it's going to go. Like I'm going to want to extend this somehow. But I think in my work, I mean, the ultimate thing that brought me back was seeing kind of underlying problems, root issues that therapy wasn't really able to address that research really needed to start to examine. And so I felt um, less effective than I would like to be because I had these questions that I felt like needed to be answered first. Um, so, so that's really what it was. I think I just kind of in my work was not frustrated with the work, but frustrated with um, seeing these kind of bigger challenges and underlying problems that, that my field specifically in that clinical work wasn't really addressing. Um, so, yeah, I feel like I had a similar experience to like thinking about that, like having been a clinical OT for five years. And then when I was making, I couldn't decide, actually, I was having a really hard time deciding whether I wanted to come back for a PhD, knowing that it would change the trajectory of my career forever. Um, so really once you have that PhD, you're trained to do more than, than your clinical work. You're trained to ask questions in a way that you can answer them to learn more about, about what we're doing as therapists. And, um, and that, that was really a tough decision. And one of the best bits of advice that I got from Allison King actually at WashU, she said to me, you know, like, don't do your PhD until there's something you care so much about that you wake, you don't mind waking up in the morning thinking about it. And you're thinking about it all the time as you're going to sleep. And, and I would say, maybe I, I started the PhD even a little too soon, because when I first started that first year is tough. And, um, and knowing that reason why you were doing it, why you are why you are coming back to school and spending so many hours and stress and sleep, you know, towards this, this idea, when you care enough about that outcome, I think that's what drives it. Like what Kelly was saying, you know, I was seeing things as a clinician that I wanted to change, but nobody would make those changes without the evidence to support it. You know, they're not going to change how clinical practice is done, what the interventions that are done, or maybe even the way that we structure our days, unless we can say there's, you know, a financial reason or a, a reason that'll help the child to do that. So um, that's what drove me to come back was that I, I really love being an OT so much. I think it is just so much fun. I love being a clinician. And I want our profession to continue to thrive and exist, but we need the evidence to do that. Um, actually, so maybe added on to that before we move on to the next question, Dr. Nardos or Harris in the chat, there is this comment, like what's the difference between a PhD and other types of research degrees? I know the three of us all have PhDs, but I, um, if you have any thoughts about that, Anybody? <laughs> I, uh, go ahead. No, 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 go ahead. Okay. The only thing I was, I would, the first thing that comes to mind is, uh, uh, is, is the freedom, right? 
Um, there's less less restrictions when you're getting your PhD. As in, you know, there's no you're not rushed to finish this project. There's no deadline. I, I kind of like that because if you're working, let's say for a company, I don't know, some biotech firm, there there's deadlines. Like you have to because people have to eat. The shareholders are going to ask, you know, for you know, where are the results? So there's deadlines for you to produce some result. And usually those results are, you know, they're kind of dictated. You know, they want they have a story to want to tell, you know what I mean? But a PhD itself is 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 so to me it was I had a question, I got in there and I had guides. I had, you know, my committee and my professor that that made sure I was asking the right questions to to you know to answer this uh, this you know, to get an idea of what, you know, of what I was concerned about. But, it, but the outcome almost didn't matter, you know, like any finding was a good finding. Uh, you'd learn something in the process, you know, it's not. So I learned statistics in the process. I learned so many different tools, programming, uh, how to think. Some people like structure, like some people are, you know, they need to, okay, you finish in four years, you know, year one, you have to do this, year two. And if you don't have that structure, people will get lost. Um, you you got to figure out what which type of person you are when you get into a PhD. So that to me is a difference, right? Is the structure is not there in a PhD. Like you make the structure yourself, which is very hard because how do you measure how well you're doing, right? Is it the number of papers you publish? Is it um, because in grad school I got in? Okay, the first year at the end of the first year you have this qualifying exam in which you come up with a research idea, you develop it, you write a paper on it, and then you present it to a group of people. And then once you pass that qualifying exam, they say, oh, okay, this guy is ready to be able to pursue his own research PhD question. Then for the next four years, you have this question and you just work it. And you have very little feedback on how well you're doing. Like you have these committee meetings and you give them updates, hey, I collected this many subjects, blah, blah, blah. but there's nobody telling you like, am I good? Am I doing well? Like, am I going to get a job after this? You know, it's, it was very hard, you know? And so <laughs> I, I, in retrospect, I wish I had gotten into the PhD with some idea, some structure in my head. Okay, by year two, I would have liked to accomplish publishing one paper. Or by year three, I would have liked, me, I just got in there and I, I swam across and I somehow I made it. <laughs> so, so that to me is a difference in the PhD world and some other more structured worlds, which I know very little about. I think um, too, I would add, I think you hit on a really important piece, right? That kind of difference between, I would say a terminal and non-terminal degree is that terminal degree, you're asking questions and everything else before that you're answering them, right? Somebody else is giving you a question and you're seeking an answer. Whereas that terminal degree, you're really doing the question development and, you know, hopefully learning or having learned to, you know, are you asking the right question, right? And how do you identify that right question? So I think um, just in line with, with what Dr. Nardos was saying, I, that I think that's an important distinction. But I think to the question about, you know, a PhD in one field versus another. Um, so as I said, I'm a clinical speech pathologist. My PhD is in education and I'm faculty in the occupational therapy program, right? Um, and so my PhD is in education, but I have concentrations in 
public health and, and um, development overall, because that was kind of my background in, in um, with speech pathology, but then also American culture studies. So my work really sits at this nexus of, um, you know, kind of public health, environmental concerns, the built environment is very interesting to me and um, looking at the impact of the built environment. And then also on these kind of educational and communication and participation outcomes. So I say that to say, um, my PhD is not in occupational therapy, but my work still is very rooted in this department and this program, if that makes sense. And so my PhD is in education. So I think that, yeah, you wanna pick the right area based on what you're interested in and that question that you have, or, you know, and we're always kind of refining those questions, right? Um, but it, that doesn't, you know, mean you can only walk one path and research down the line. You get your PhD and you can almost do whatever you want with it because, you know, you have the tools to acquire knowledge in other areas, right? And so some of that has to be structured or formal knowledge, but, but in other cases, it doesn't. Um, I mean, we can take classes forever, but that's not necessary to gain the actual knowledge and tools we need. So I, I, I want to stress that point you just made, which is my background is also in neuroscience, not in occupational therapy, but, but yet here we are, right? And you're, yeah. you're, you're from education and, and somehow we're transferring that to, to this field or hoping to. Yeah. It's the way the world is going, right? So I think one of the original questions that maybe Haley you asked was kind of about multidisciplinary work that's happening. And I think, um, you know, most people, that's what we're looking at. How, um, how do we come together to collaborate and really create multidisciplinary, interdisciplinary projects? Because honestly, when we're thinking about making, you know, change in the world and whatever population of interest to us, people are not, um, you know, uh, people are multidisciplinary, right? There are multiple facets. And, and, and so it's the work that we, have to, that we do has to really address that. And so we can live in our little narrow lanes and worlds, but we won't be as effective. Um, so it's my two cents. It's um, a really good point, actually, that I was just thinking about that and realizing like, oh, hey, the three of us that are here, I'm the only one that's an OT, but we're talking about OT research. And I think what is so cool about that is that is that occupational therapy really is a field that's working with individuals to do the things that they want and need to do in their everyday lives. But what they want and need to do is related to literally everything that we can imagine. And so how do we get people to do what they want and need to do? And that has to do with education, with speak, speech and communication and how the brain is working. So really what, we're, what I hope we're able to answer is that as we think about occupational therapy and rehabilitation science and occupational science and all the words that are being thrown out there for how we describe the science of occupational therapy, it relates to everything. So, so when you're thinking about if a research career is right for me, it's really about kind of what Dr. Nardos was talking about a little bit ago about identifying those questions that are meaningful to you and then thinking about what is the field that aligns with that question? Because it might not be directly in OT, but you might go learn it somewhere else and then come and bring it back. Or, or you know, maybe you'll bring OT to them, which is also a wonderful thing to do. That's what I'm saying. Maybe it's OT there with a specialization a somewhere. I'm sorry, did I cut you off? Yeah. No, no, please. I was just joking. I was going to say the risk is you just, you can't stop your brain from asking the questions. There's too many questions. Yeah. 
The difference is, I think, though, you have like the space and time to go answer it, right? Like when I was a clinician and asking these questions, I had to go work. I couldn't, you know, like I didn't have the time to really give that any mental energy, whereas now I do. But um, I think we have- That's a blessing. Yeah, it is. I, I agree. Um, I, I, we have one more question, but then I, we definitely want to see if you guys have any additional questions. Um, I think the last question we want to ask um, is just, you know, what were you most concerned about as you made the jump? And you touched on that a little bit, Dr. Nottis, and saying the things that were challenging or that, you know, um, maybe were, were hard or, or fearful, but like what, yeah, what were the concerns thinking about a, pursuing a PhD program? You too, Dr. Hoyt. I, I'll say first for me, so the challenges while I was, or before pursuing, I don't think I, I wouldn't call them a challenge, but you know, before getting into the program, like I said earlier, I really didn't give it much thought. Like I, most people are the, like my sister, are the type of people that, that, that like to plan and outline and, you know, this is the plan, this is what I'm going to do. I wasn't like that. I just kind of, oh, grad school. My you know, brother-in-law at the time was like, hey, you know, you seem to be interested in this. Maybe you should try this thing out. Because he was a grad student at the time. I was like, oh, you know, this seems cool. I like your lifestyle, you know. <laughs> I was like, let me do it. <laughs> so that's how I got into it, you know. Um, so getting in wasn't a challenge. While I was in it, I told you some of the challenges, you know, like getting the, um, you know, how well I'm, am I doing part was, was tough you know, getting, assessing how, you know, your, your progress was tough. That was a challenge. Um, I was lucky enough that I didn't have these challenges, which, which are things like not getting along with your mentor. Like it's, it's a big deal picking the right mentor. I had friends that had very rough times. You know, the lab that you pick to get into is, it's, it's like a marriage. Uh, you have, you know, that person you work with is, is your mentor, your everything, you know. So you have to make sure to pick the right one when you get that in. That is solid advice, Dr. Nardo. Yeah, yeah. And, and I, you know, I was, I was lucky enough I didn't have that issue. And I was also lucky enough to not just have one mentor, right? So I had kind of multiple, which is also a good thing for you to try to do if you can, if you go down that path, you know, spread your, your wings. Uh, but those challenges were 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 you know they were i i went through them they weren't you know really that tough the biggest one for me was as i was getting close to the end is what am i going to do with this and if i choose to go down the strictly research path and try to go to a, a, a institution where I, I have to generate my own research dollars and money i didn't want that lifestyle because it's, at least in the neuroscience world, I sold the lifestyle that people that have to generate their own money live. And it's, it's, it's not easy, especially if, you know, you're not fully, fully into it. You're working 80, 90 hours a week, sometimes, to try to get the money. And, and getting, generating the money, writing grants takes up a lot of time for them. You know, compared to the time you spend actually doing the research. And I said, I mean, I like doing the research, but I don't want to spend my time trying to chase dollars. And I said, I, I don't want it. You know, I, so I decided I didn't want that research intensive sort of route. And I've been chasing opportunities to try to teach, you know, since then. 
And for me, it was tough because the institution that I went to Washington University and their focus, their training was in try to produce researchers, right? People that would go chase the money, get the grant dollars, and you become a researcher with a research question and stuff. Not teachers. It's not the program is not set up to produce teachers. So if you want to be a teacher, you have to go out of your way to try to guest lecture in a certain class, uh, go to a teaching center to try to get resources of how to write a teaching philosophy statement. Do you know you have to do the work yourself. And as a postdoc too, that kind of was what I had to do because as a postdoc, my job was to again be a researcher. That was my primary you know duty. But thankfully, I liked out. I got into a lab that not only allowed me to devote time to teach. Um, in neighboring institutions, but also do a lot of community outreach. You know, I, one thing I really developed later on was I cared about sharing what I know, this neuroscience world, this teaching world, this who I am, to people that come from backgrounds that are typical in this world. I want to bring in the most atypical, underrepresented minorities into this field because they're just not there. They're not represented. If you talk about research and let's say some ailment, let's say sickle cell you brought up, Catherine, you know, it's a disease that primarily affects black people. Uh, if it's a disease that affects black people, it would be nice if it was black people doing the research. You know what I mean? Because those people will have the kind of questions that maybe, you know, Catherine might not. Because those people have family members that have, does, you know, that kind of stuff. So, I want to, I care deeply about like sharing this world to, to the world that it's that, you know, I think you guys get the idea of, of what I mean. And, and I had a chance to do that in the past four or five years and really care about what it means to, okay, be a neuroscientist. Fine. I'm a neuroscientist. Now what I do, what do I do with it? You know, I have to somehow give back to the community somehow, somewhere. How do I connect back? Teaching I found was one way, you know, to talk to people like you. It's, it's big power to try to reach youngsters you know coming up be like hey this is how i was and you guys can do it too it's a big deal especially since i'm black you know black kids can now see hey you know barack obama the biggest thing that he did even though i don't agree with everything that he did is he was a black dude and he he showed that it's possible if you're black to, to get up top so that's what we try to do every day uh i kind of geared away from research here uh <laughs> that's okay yeah yeah. I do. I think you made some really excellent points, though, Dr. Nordos, about a lot of different topics related to increasing diversity and representation in research and higher education and how important that is. But then also that those concerns jumping from other careers to research can take place at many different stages, whether that's deciding, whether you had difficulty deciding or during the education process. And you touched on so many different things that I think are so important for people considering a path in research to consider, like what is that ultimate purpose and how do you pick what lab to be in or what your research questions should be? I know for me, actually, as I was listening to you talk, I was the opposite. Um, it was hard for me to decide to make that jump. I was nervous. Um, I was which, nervous. I'm sorry, which jump? Like from my previous job, I was a clinician for five years to doing, to pursuing a PhD and doing research. That switch was hard for me because- I didn't think I was smart enough, if I'm really honest. I didn't me think too, that. Me too. I really didn't think that I could do it. Um, I, I know I have the OTD, but like that actually, I didn't intend, I intended to do a clinical master's in OT. I didn't think I was smart enough for the 
for the OTD and ended up doing that. And I didn't think I was capable of finishing a PhD. You and know, then no, I, had, I, had the same, I had the same problems because mm-hmm. for me, I didn't have the biology kind of background. I came from economics, computer science. How the hell am I going to make it in this brain world? That was a, you know, yeah, sorry. Sorry to cut you off, but go ahead. I can relate to that. Um, thank you for sharing that, Dr. Nardos. I, you know, I think people often feel isolated in those feelings and it can be very intimidating then to apply or to ask the questions if you're not sure if you are prepared. But I feel like I, I want to tell all the OTs that I, I know that you're prepared. I know that you are, and I know that you have important questions to ask. It's just finding the mentor that can help guide you through that, that matches your mentorship needs. So um, Dr. Harris, uh, there was a question in the chat for you. Um, so did you see it? Do you wanna just go yeah. ahead? Yeah, um, I'll just read a concern about academic research careers. One concern is the rejection and burnout related to um, things like funding. So how do I manage those challenges? So, I, you know, I'll say um, a couple of things about that. As I mentioned, I was in an education program and education is not work in the same way that medical schools do in terms of the stress and pressure around funding, right? Um, so this, I did not see my life here when I started that program, that this was not what I envisioned, right? Um, and I had a, a mentor and advisor who encouraged me to, you know, no, you should be looking at the medical school. That is... Um, you know, bringing education and kind of merging that education and public health in that setting is what's good. And I was really fearful of that. And I think um, at the same time, so when I came back to school, I was married with two children. Um, And so one concern I had was money. I think, you know, if I'm just being honest, like going back to school, am I going to be able to, you know, maintain my lifestyle was a concern. But then thinking about coming into this type of position um, you know, my kids are at the, they're, you know, at these ages that time is important. And I think priorities are key. So I prioritize my life in a way that, you know, I, I a work family, like a, a work family balance is critical to me and I'm maintaining that. And um, my research, I'm not going to let completely die, but I'm also, it does not get to win every battle. Simple as that, right? Like, um, and, and I think really maintaining kind of my mental health and all of those things help me to have a healthy, um, to dictate what I see as a healthy research productivity, right? And to make sure that I'm in a program that agrees with that perspective that aligns well with, you know, what works for me, right? So I wouldn't go into a program that um, is not friendly to families, that does not, you know, um, support that kind of prioritization, right? And that really um, expects me to just be a workhorse and nothing else, right? So I think it's really thinking about what you value, what your priorities are, and making sure that that is the type of position you're looking for and the type of work that you're looking to do, if that makes sense. I think that, you know, this is part of the culture that we all have to kind of work together to continue to change. um, Because I think it's a culture and a climate that is not healthy sometimes. And we have to just kind of continue to push that needle a little bit. Um, so, so yeah, that's for me. I um, am very kind of aware and mindful of the burnout and the balance and keeping that balance. In terms of rejection, um, you know, don't take it personal. That's the best, that's the, you know, for me, that's, that's what it comes down to, right? Like recognizing that um, rejection is far more common than acceptance in general, but that doesn't mean that nothing you submit gets accepted, right? It means that it's an opportunity to make it better. 
it means that for, for whatever reason, that wasn't a good fit, good fit. And so what's the next thing or how do I, you know, how do I work on this to make it better? And um, when I kind of changed my frame to think about it in that way, it was really helpful. Um, I had a mentor sit down with me with a, it wasn't a rejection for a manuscript, but it was like heavy edits. Right. And I have kind kind of come to understand that like, Hey, if I don't get heavy edits on something, I don't feel like, did you read it? Because Harris, why do you have to keep reminding me of my rejected <laughs> manuscript? Um, but no, <laughs> um, yeah, so I don't know. I, I think that's, I, it's the reframing of the rejections that it's not a rejection of you as a person. It's a rejection of saying this isn't the right grant or this isn't right, the right paper for this agency at this time. It doesn't mean it's a bad idea either. Uh, I'm not going to say that it gets easier though. I feel like still I get like a rejection on a paper manuscript and I feel personally assaulted that like, you know, (laughs) I love what I'm doing. I care so much about this. Why don't you care about it? I feel that you should, and I'm not sure why you don't. (laughs) Um, So it, it does, it does still hurt. I think for me anyways. Um, but it gets easier. Yeah, I agree. It does. I mean, yeah, it still stings. <laughs> yeah. Um, to your point, Bridget, about um, thinking about money. I mean, I think that I, I was very cautious and thought about that. And so when you look at programs, you want to know what the opportunities are, um, what you can apply for for extra, you know, are there fellowships, extra sponsorships? What what do the stipends look like? Um, How much, I worked throughout my PhD program and I worked uh, more than I should have, but um, which is not necessarily the right answer either, right? But like figuring out what works for you, um, I would say. And asking the programs and other people in current programs, if you're at that stage of like really thinking about it, do, current students work. I know for me in my program, we were advised not to work at all outside um, yeah. in the first year. And then after that, you know, I was advised like six to 10 hours would be acceptable. Um, mm-hmm. And I know a lot of clinical rehab programs, you know, they allow uh, PhD students to continue working in some way because you're also a clinician and it can bring in some extra money, but also you know, then the amount of hours. So is that good for you in other realms of life too? Um, I know okay. for PhDs. Sorry, sorry, Dr. Harris. I just didn't say be realistic about the type of student that you are, right? Yeah. For, for some of us, working is a bad idea. Mm-hmm. For others, you can make it work. I think you have to re- be realistic about what, you know, be honest with yourself about who you are and what mm-hmm. you are willing to do. Right, yeah. I'm actually a PT and my sister is a PT and she told me about this because I've been really, um, and that's why, that's how I heard about this. She went to Wash U and, um, you know, I really wanted to kind of hear your guys' perspective on it as a, as a working mom, you know, like, like I've always wanted to kind of go back and do my own research. I'm involved in research a little bit at Charlie Ryan Ability Lab, but, um, just trying to figure out how I can maybe work a little bit and do the research at the same time. So that's what I'm, that's where I'm at right now. And it's, I love hearing your guys's like candid, realistic 
um, real perspectives. It's so helpful for me. So thank you for sharing everything see, today. See, see if you can combine the two. Like you said, That's you're what working I'm right thinking. now. Yeah. And see if you can I'm, apply research to what you're doing. Well, what I'm thinking is, so one of the researcher, um, so I'm actually in a master's of health services and outcomes research program at Northwestern. And so I'm like, okay, this master's is teaching me the research skills that I need, but at the same time in the PTOT world, for some reason, my, my research boss is a research, uh, PhD, PT, PhD. And, um, she th seems to think that if you ever want to teach like you or you ever want to do clinical research, like you need to have a PhD as a PT. But I don't think that's necessarily the case. Like you just need this research skills. But for some reason in the OT and PT profession, I feel like it's this sort of unspoken like requirement. But at the same time, there are the NIH has clinical tracks that MDs do and they don't have PhDs sometimes you know, and they go on this clinical research track and then the NIH has the PhD track. Um, so that to me is like confusing. And, you know, with the money thing, I'm still trying to figure that out, but I'm thinking I could maybe try to convince my organization to let me work the 20 hours, but I, because that's what I'm doing now is 50, 50. And then the other 50% is research time, but really it's me getting my PhD time. Um, and then with that stipend, um, the research stipend. So that's how I'm thinking it might work, but that is going to be so tough. And I do, I, like you said, Kelly or Dr. Harris is that it's really important for me to like recognize that I'm not going to be the straight A student that I normally am. And that's okay, but that's so hard for me to say, you know, as a, as a mom and working, like, I, how am I going to do that? So um, those are the things that are on my mind and um, any thoughts on, from you guys? I would just add the one thing, and I, I think Dr. Ross touched on this, but just because somebody else finishes a program in four years doesn't mean that's what you have to do. Right. Or five years or like, you know, don't mm -hmm. make every other people you're measuring stick, right? Just yeah. because this person with no children is a straight A student. Do you feel, did you learn the material? Are you competent in it? Did you, you know, did you pass? Yes. But like, mm -hmm. I mean, I think some of those details you have to, you have to prioritize. Right. I agree. And I think that's sort of just a life lesson in general, but, um, you know, as I'm going through, even just taking master's classes right now and using my um, tuition reimbursement benefits at my organization, I'm kind of chipping away at it here and there and doing my own pace. And I think that's totally fine for me right now. And, um, but now I'm trying to think about what the next steps are and what that might look like and, and being okay with it, right? That all personal growth thing too, I think, but. And I just I, want to- I have, oh, I, have, I have a kind of quick one. And is it really true that getting a PhD is really the only way that you can do research. I don't think that's the case. No. Because no. like with our OTD programs, right? Uh, so you're already a PT, right? Yeah, I'm a DPT. And yeah, and I have a specialty in neurologic clinical um, specialties. So, um, so, what, so what would it look like uh, you know, if, if you, for instance, was to come in into our PT or our OT program, like where would we place her? I think the problem is, is from yeah. my understanding, correct me yeah. if I'm wrong, you guys, you know, I'm up here at Northwestern in Chicago. So, and 
know this world up here, but um, it, it seems like you would, I would not be allowed like tenure track and things like that. And, and that's kind of the, the pushback and the negative piece of it. But like, do I really need tenure track right now? <laughs> you know what yeah, I mean? No, but what, like, I, mean is, I, don't what know. I mean is for you to try to get yeah. exposure to research, right? So if right. you attended the doctoral, you know, physical therapy or doctoral occupational therapy program, mm -hmm. you, you, she would be able to, to do that, right? To do research. In August is going to focus on the different types of degrees to get to research because with a clinical right. focused degree, um, the, the downside is that a lot of the reviewers at NIH or this is what I've been told, don't understand necessarily what those clinical doctorates are, the DPT and the OTD. And so they don't view those favorably or as trained to do research. So there are some additional things that you can do. I do know some people with OTDs that have mm -hmm. gone on to do like postdocs to get additional research training or have done an OTD and an MSCI, and mm -hmm. that has worked for a path to research. You don't mm -hmm. always need a PhD is the short term, right. but we'll continue that conversation um, and also you can email us anytime and we could connect you with other people that have gone on to research careers without a PhD, if that's what you'd like, if you'd like to be connected with those types of people. Sure. Um, yeah. Great. Thank you so much for answering. I'll put my, me and, um, Dr. Harris's all, or maybe all three of us can just put our things in the chat, but related to money, um, if, if you are unaware, like a lot of PhD programs, some of them cost money but many of them provide a stipend. Um, at WashU, when I was a student, it was a little bit over 24,000 and your student loans go on pause while you're a student. So I'm not, I don't want, it, it is a decision and a commitment because I know that OTD isn't cheap. Um, There's also, I will say, you know, cause I, um, I had debt for my master's um, at Northwestern actually. Um, and, uh, after my PhD, I did, um, there are loan repayment options. They're competitive and they're not easy to get, but I got one and, you know, I didn't know what I was going to do with my debt after the fact. And so, um, you know, there is funding that will repay some of that debt. So like NIH is repaying my student loans. Competitive though. Um, it is competitive. Um, it is competitive. And, you know, I, I'll tell you, I applied more than once, but, um, and I was fine with that. Like, that's okay. Tell me, tell me what to fix and I'll come back make it better. So, I mean, there are other options. Um, and that's not the only one. I think they're, you know, clinically working in various areas and things like that. There are alternatives also. I think that's something we have to rethink or think about how we adjust so that people can access research careers though, because of this cost burden. I had, you know, I, I had the opportunity and the financial ability to do that, but I think, you know, there's other considerations. Like if you have kids, if you have another income, I was, at that time I was married and had a husband who was bringing in enough money so that we could pay our rent and eat. And I, I couldn't have done it by myself to be honest, financially. It is I think that's so important. And you were just bringing up diversity and, you know, how do we get people that would have an economic challenge to get into PhD programs? That's kind of, you know, even, even me, I, that's where I'm at. I've got $250,000 worth of student loan debt from my DPT. It just keeps climbing because I'm doing income-based repayment, um, you know, and, and <laughs> that's, that's the biggest question for me. And, and as the primary breadwinner, that's another issue too, you know? Um, but 
yeah, and just trying to think about how you can get a diverse group of people in PhD programs and doing research. But when the cost, you know, like getting or letting go of your clinical um, salary, that is, is scary to me. You know, it's like a third. Uh, I, the stipend would be a third of what I'm making right now. So that's, right. that's yeah. <laughs> Yeah, not just the salary. (laughs) So the other thing that I've told students is it's like, it's not benefits, right? It's the benefits. It's the, you know, the retirement, the health insurance, it's Mm -hmm. the years of not making that salary. Um, Right. It's a commitment. Yeah, absolutely. So I think it's just something for the research community to definitely think about too. Um, You know, with, how we're helping people become researchers and PhD. Um, candidates, those kind of things. I, yeah, I don't. <laughs> yeah. Um, but thank you for, for joining us and engaging. You guys have great questions. So this is wonderful. Um, we throw our emails in the chat. So feel free to email us with other questions as well as they come up. Um, yeah, I think, and thank you, Dr. Nauters, for being our guest today. We appreciate it. It was wonderful. Thank you for joining us today. Check out our other episodes to hear more. You can find the first season on YouTube under Washington University Program and Occupational Therapies channel under the First Fridays for OT Research playlist. And more episodes of Demystifying Research linked under the Research tab on the Washington University OT webpage at ot.wustl.edu. That's ot.wustl.edu. Send us your ideas for future episodes at Demystifying